Welcome back to New Books in History. My name is Derek Litvak, and I'll be your host. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking to Dr. Lenora Warren about her book, Fire on the Water, Sailors, Slaves, and Insurrection in Early American Literature, 1789 to 1886, published by Rutgers University Press in 2019. Dr. Warren is a lecturer at Ithaca College. Fire Underwater looks at the history of abolition and slave violence by examining the representations of shipboard mutiny and insurrection in the late 18th and early 19th century literature. By examining the intersection of both real and fictional stories, Dr. Warren explains how mutiny and insurrection were critical to the development of the abolitionist movement, even as those connections between slave violence and the movement were complex and fraught. Dr. Warren, welcome to the program. Um, Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So I guess to begin, could you tell us how you became interested in this topic? Um, I think it was uh, when I was reading um, Benito Serino uh, for the first time as a master's student. Um, It was my very first exposure to Melville. I'm almost ashamed to say that my undergraduate education was zero Melville. Um, I had to become a graduate student to get to Melville. And um, Benito Serino is uh, such a vexed, fascinating, um, disturbing novella in a lot of ways. And it kind of asks the question, um, what do we think of um, insurrection of the ins- um, um, in the 18th and 19th century when the actors don't look like heroes? And it was a really compelling question to me. Um, and then uh, it led me to Billy Budd, um, you know, his um, posthumously published novella, um, um, some say possibly unfinished. And Billy Budd isn't really ostensibly about race, but I really came to see those two texts as um, interconnected. And that led me to this larger um, exploration of uh, the way that um, shipboard insurrection and violence aboard ships and literature in the 18th and 19th century were really doing something interesting with regards to asking questions of um, insurrectionist violence um, and slavery and abolition at the time. So it was a kind of um, 10-year project that kept kind of evolving um, until it became the book, which sort of focuses on these four real life sailors who are also, um, enslaved or, or, um, kind of, um, I'm sorry, they're, they're kind of hybrid figures of, of sailor, sailors and the enslaved, and they have these fictional counterparts as well. So that became the structure of the book that sort of allowed me to kind of explore all of these things, um, in a more formal manner. So that's how I kind of came to this subject. And I know for me, I found it really interesting uh, the the way that you kind of reorient how we think about slavery in this book, because, you know, as you say, and um, and I think most people think this way, when we think of slavery, we think of, you know, the institution itself. And almost always we're going to be thinking of like a plantation. Yes. Um, and instead, you're showing that very early on. Um, the slave ship becomes the object that mm-hmm. abolitionists are paying the most attention to. And you kind of reorient us to kind of yeah. actually look at this the way the abolitionist movement develops. So how yeah. does the slave ship become the focus? Um, so in some ways, this isn't a new idea. You see this, of course, with um, The Black Atlantic and by Paul Gilroy. Um, I think where I actually reorient um, the, the focus is not in the hold of the ship, where the violence happens, where the abjection happens, where the sickness um, and the kind of horror is. I'm looking at 
uh, the moment of the moment when um, freedom becomes unfreedom at the moment of capture, the moment, um, the moment where the slave ship is perceived and um, the enslaved sort of makes the decision to fight back. Um, and I wanted to show um, that um, part of the problem of the way we think about insurrectionist violence has been. Um, and thinking of it as a reaction to not just enslavement, but kind of turmoil, abuse, um, assault, um, depredation. Rather, um, the slave ship shows that um, the precondition for insurrection is the mere act of becoming unfree. And that has, that's a kind of an immediate reaction. Um, and one of the um, reasons I wanted to kind of keep my focus on that is because I believe that the problems um, of racialized violence kind of depend on the way we think about um, the actors of violence, like what creates a hero and what creates a monster. Um, and if and I wanted to kind of do away with this sort of precondition of like, it is only okay to um, react to unfreedom if one is being abused. The precondition of violence is unfreedom. And I think that um, can go a long way to kind of getting us to think about what um, what humanity really is about when it comes to kind of violent acts. We tend to sort of um, think of violence as something um, inhuman. And I'm kind of interested in the idea of violence as a deeply human reaction um, um, to, um, to, particularly when it comes to the threat to one's um, autonomy. So that's why the slave ship becomes um, a really interesting focus for me, um, particularly reorienting it from the hold to the deck, so to speak. Yeah, I find it so interesting because, you know, I think when most people think of, you know, violence and slavery, like I said, they're thinking of the plantation, but, you know, the slave ship is inherently a very violent place because, as you said, it's this point where freedom becomes unfreedom and that in and of itself is a violent act. Yes, exactly. Um, and it's also um, when you through my research, I discovered a sort of totalizing space of um kind of dysfunction and abuse. Um, I think in my first chapter, I show how um, the original sort of um, um, witnesses to the atrocity were sailors and sailors were often um, impressed into service aboard slave ships because conditions were so bad. Um, um, and, you, and, you, um, and you have a kind of weird, uh, fascinating um, um, echo of the abuses upon the enslaved um, visited on the sailors. So, so that's why that's why the sailors um, sailor slave link was so important because um, you don't absent the actual testimony from the people being enslaved themselves. You really need the testimony of the sailors um, to kind of show not just what is happening um, at the moment of kidnapping, at the moment of um, kind of, of transportation, but that the whole system is dysfunctional and abusive, not just to the people being enslaved. And so speaking about, you know, this violence of, you know, slavery and of the slave ship, how is violence portrayed by early abolitionists? How is it used? And you know, what does this mean both for the abolitionist movement itself and then for enslaved people who are actually the ones, you know, enacting their own sort of violence and having their own will, as you say? Mm -hmm. So this is where, you know, the question of um, 
um, you know, the di- the famous uh, diagram of the slave ship, the Brooks diagram, comes into play. Um, this was circulated widely um, um, in the late um, 18th century in Great Britain, um, and it was seen as kind of this um, expose of the abuses of slavery. And you can tell right away when you look at it how what the effect is. Um, and for one, it's not an, it doesn't come to us initially as a piece of propaganda. It's a tool um, designed for for slavers um, to kind of um, effectively um, pack in the quote-unquote cargo, um, if you will. Um, so this so it becomes a kind of um, um, spectacle of the scale um, of slavery. Um, and it leads to sort of like the images, um, um, the rather, um, rather famous image that I think I have in the introduction of the book, the kind of um, kneeling, um, kneeling man in chains with the caption, am I not a man and a brother? Um, and these kind of penitent kneeling, um, um, kind of powerless um, images sort of proliferate. Um, but what that does is um, it, it creates this kind of image of the slave as abject and acted on as opposed to acting. Um, and I think you see that um, not just um not just in these images for propaganda, but you see sort of um, this kind of um, vogue for, um, um, you know, I'm thinking about um, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the kind of like gentle giant of a slave, gentle kind of like the idea that um, um, these people are kind of too good and too simple to be, um, um, to be dangerous, um, and the and the and the the sort of romantic racialization of the slave becomes a way of kind of de- of moving of moving the subject away from like the possibility of insurrectionist violence and keeping it solely on the um, act you know the violent actors of um, slavers like the character like Simon Legree, um, and you you know in a way you can see the heroic slave that by Douglas as kind of reacting against that motif when he writes it later in the um, 1850s. And for me, you know, it, the way in which, you know, the violence is depicted by these early abolitionists is, is so interesting because of the ways in which you speak about how violence can't kind of equal political will, you know, kind of going back to this framework of, you know, that that you're putting in place that, you know, the deck and the slave ship itself is mm. inherently violent that, you know, a enslaved people aren't going to only revolt once they're off the ship they revolt on the ship because they have their own will and you know they see their own status changing from freed to unfree and so that kind of conflicts with the abolitionist movement and trying to portray them as you know helpless souls Mm -hmm. yes and you can sort of see this initially as a reaction um, to the haitian revolution um you know the kind the haitian revolution made any sort of idea of kind of supporting political violence um in reaction to slavery kind of really taboo um and the, you know the haitian revolution um, tends to get seen as kind of separate from the american revolution the french revolution never mind that the french revolution um, was characterized by enormous violence the violence of the haitian revolution is sort of seen as aberrant and horrifying and um something to be avoided at all costs you know you know you can see clarkson in his um his history of the rise and fall the progress of slavery um excuse me let me get that <laughs> title uh, a little more correct 
history of the rise, progress, and accomplishment of the abolition of the slave trade, sort of making the decision um, that um, keeping the focus away from insurrection on the kind of on the violence acted on the enslaved as just more politically expedient. Um, even the abolition of the slave trade itself was about curbing um, the um, violence in the sugar plantations so that the sugar sugar production could continue with slavery. Um, one of the more fascinating elements of the abolition of the slave trade is that um, it needed act people like Edward Long, who was very, very much in favor of slavery, viciously racist, but also believed that um, it was the influx of, of, of new peoples into the plantation that exacerbated um, insurrection. Um, and that's where you get these um, terms such as um, um, increasing, um, in continuing slavery through quote unquote natural increase, um, the natural sort of increase of the slave population through childbirth. Um, so you begin to see um, the problem of um, abolition becomes um, of ch- sort of choosing um, the best way to do something, but also choosing the most politically safe way to do something. Um, and you see, you see that happening over and over in the history. And it reminds me so much of how, you know, I, I'm thinking, you know, in the American context, particularly, you know, and I'm originally from Virginia mm-hmm. myself. And one of the things that I remember learning in public school so much is about George Mason and how he supposedly, you know, this staunch abolitionist who wanted to get rid of slavery. And really, I remember looking for the first time in college about, you know, really anything that he talks about slavery is almost always aimed at the slave trade itself. And, you know, besides the pure economic reasons of why he's actually opposed to the slave trade, you know, it's very common for enslavers to not like the slave trade. And so it becomes like this focus Mm -hmm. of both abolitionists and enslavers to get rid of the slave trade. But as you said just now, you know, it's not actually addressing the institution itself. Yeah, I mean, if there's a if there's one place that the book doesn't go that actually um, could be a rich vein is the way in which um, the absence of the will to attack the like the sugar economy, particularly in the 18th century, um, really sort of led to these kind of um, short term solutions. These ones that sort of like um, made it possible for these temporary alliances to be made between anti-slavery um, advocates and um um, and, 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 and slaveholders in the colonies. So you see that there's a kind of, there's a large kind of economic structure that um, even those who are very, very, very reluctant to kind of fully embrace the slave trade, they will not touch the wealth of the sugar trade. And you can probably make the same argument about the cotton trade um, in this country, which I don't talk as much about in my book. And you mentioned earlier, you know, the slave diagram that Mm -hmm. was used first, you know, as you said, to actually instruct uh, slave, uh, the people who are, you know, driving these slave ships to how they should, you know, pack the cargo, as you said, and then it becomes this propaganda tool. And so how is it used as a propaganda tool? And kind of what are the drawbacks that you were able to, you know, see in the way in which it depicted enslaved people? 
Well, I think it's just because it's really, you know, it's just, it's, you don't need to annotate it. You know, they just, they, they, it's able to be distributed just as it is. You know, this is, this is the diagram of the slave ship Brooks. Um, And one of the interesting things about this, about the practice of slavery, particularly as a particular Great Britain, is that there was a lot of, um, obfuscation surrounding the actual details of what was going on because it was so far away. Um, so you have this kind of sense of a very, very large operation kind of uh, kind of going undercover because, you know, the colonies are all the way across the ocean. Um, the abuses are happening all the way on the Western coast of Africa. So there's a, so the, so the, the average the average Briton isn't aware. So the, the Brooks, the Brooks image kind of puts that right front and center. Um, but, um, you know, one of the interesting things I do when I teach, um, Equiano is I show the Brooks image and I ask my students, like, how do you know that this is the diagram of a slave ship? Um, and that question always really throws them. Um, and the, and it's because you can see the shapes of people and you have to think about a system that's so totalizing that the printers actually have these shapes, um, to kind of illustrate the packing of people. So it really kind of creates this, um, immediate recognition of the term human cargo, um, but the detriment, but the, the drawbacks to this image were really brought home to me um, when I read about, um, I think it was the Count Mirabeau, who um, actually had a three-dimensional re- um, reproduction of the slave ship made and sort of um, kind of fetishized it as an object. And you can begin to see how the absence of kind of a human story behind um, those individual bodies becomes a problem. And you can, and Equiano's um, interesting narrative is it is in some way supposed to kind of address that, address that lack. Um, but as I talk about in the book, Equiano is also skirting the issue of um, representing insurrection in his book and trying to kind of um, reframe the argument about abuse and about, uh, about this sort of like, um, fine, upstanding, um, emancipated slave who is now making good as a kind of productive member of society. Yeah. And I mean, for me, when thinking about it, you know, when you're taking something that's originally meant to show enslavers how to pack cargo, per se, and then you're trying to turn that around and say, look, they're treating human beings as cargo. As you said, you kind of lose the human element of it. And, you know, it's something that like on a logical level, almost looking back, you can see it. Yeah. But, you know, I wonder you know, how much how much were you know, these abolitionists like intentionally doing this, you know, because as we both know, as a lot of people who might listen to this know that, you know, they have a problem with the morals of slavery, but not so much caring about the individuals. And that's why people like Equiano are trying to breathe life into these people. Yeah, it's again, you you can't really assign intention, especially particularly, um, you know, given how messy <laughs> this history is, as in, as is any history, and I think my larger point is sort of like thinking is sort of about the ways in which um, certain pressures came to bear upon the abolitionists. Like, so for example, the Haitian Revolution, as I said earlier, made it impossible to kind of um, to kind of effectively advocate for advocate for an armed response to slavery and get any support whatsoever. 
Um, and there is also, you know, the fact that you have like your early anti-slavery advocates were off, you know, were Quakers, peace, you know, p- you know, people who were very much against violence as such. And, you know, and I think that's always, that's sort of the uh, more vexed question about that I'm, I, I'm still kind of thinking about is like, to what extent do we want to say an armed response is always the right response? However, I don't think I want to make that point um as you know, hard and fast. My my larger point is like, to what extent do we dehumanize people who react with violence in a way that is distinctly racialized? And um, unwittingly, abolitionist rhetoric and practices contributed to the racialization of violence, albeit, you know, without, you know, malicious intent all the time. Yeah, I mean, I, I just found the discussion so, so fascinating in your book about this. And, you know, speaking of something like, you know, the Haitian Revolution and, you know, slave violence, one of the things that I, I really appreciated in your book was when you, you know, spoke about the historiography around slave conspiracies uh-huh. and revolts and rebellions mm-hmm. and the way that historians have kind of mimicked the rhetoric that people used back then, the contemporaries mm-hmm. back then used mm-hmm. about debating whether or not a conspiracy was real. Yeah. So what what is that about and why is that sort of important for your larger argument to kind of dispel this rhetoric? Yeah. So you're talking about the Denmark Vesey conspiracy that I write about in the second chapter. And my point here is that the question of whether or not there's an actual conspiracy or if Charleston officials made it up in order to implement um, draconian laws against enslaved people acquiring education, holding large gatherings, etc., is that I think the problem um, of this historical debate is that it requires the presence or absence of insurrection to prove something about the enslaved, um, namely that they were either innocent victims or bystanders or savvy, heroic conspirators. Um, and I think be, like um, it kind of puts um, history in this bind of sort of proving something um, affirmative or disproving something in order to make a kind of maybe um, um, defend more similar point, but in the opposite direction. Um, and again, this also does the same thing that I'm kind of exploring in my book is like, you can't have this, um, binary in which um, um, the enslaved either fit into this kind of innocent, um, nonviolent, gentle um, persona or this kind of violent, heroic actor, or because it leaves open that the other the other kind of stereotype, which is kind of the violent, savage, monstrous um, insurrectionist. You have to, I want to do away with those questions altogether and think more um, openly about it. Like, isn't it interesting um, that the mere fear of insurrection um, is enough to kind of create this paranoia? Um, because um, whether a conspiracy happens or not, there are still other conspiracies that come to fruition, such as Nat Turner's. Um, and um, whether Bessie's um, conspiracy was real or not, the fear of it shows exactly my point that the threat of violence is ever present when wherever there is unfreedom. Um, so that's 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 where I was kind of going with that argument. Yeah, I, I I really appreciated it because, you know, in terms of your larger argument about, you know, recognizing that enslaved people are actually, you know, 
a part of this process and doing things in their own interests and everything like that and how this intersects with the abolitionist movement and everything like that you know as you said you know when you when you get to debating about whether or not something is happening or not you foreclose all of these different possibilities yeah. and you miss the point that Obviously, the people in power are scared of something, and that fear in and of itself means something. Yes. Um, in um, Thomas Gray's Confessions of Nat Turner, he re- he records or allegedly records Turner kind of making this point, where at the very end of the interview, Gray asks Turner if um, he knows of any other conspiracy. And Turner, of course, says no. And he says, are you sure? And Turner says something like... Um, do you think that I'm the only one that saw the signs? And throughout the interview, um, Turner has sort of made reference to seeing kind of signs and wonders pointing to like now is t- the t- time to rise up. Um, put another way, though, um, he, you know, given Turner's sort of method of playing with Gray in that interview, he's also kind of saying, like, what makes you think I'm the only one that would have this idea like, what makes you think that I'm the only one that would react this way? Um, so there's a kind of like, it doesn't, so like the ad, the presence or absence of one conspiracy um, seems to sort of threaten um, historians with like, well, if we lose the Vesey conspiracy, it does that somehow mean something less in the history of kind of the fight for freedom in the history of enslavement. Um, but that create that makes um that makes the history itself seem so fragile where I think it's actually really robust no matter what no matter what conspiracy exists or doesn't exist. Yeah, I mean I, I just I totally agree there. Maybe just because, you know, I think about rebellions from my own work sometimes, um, and the the fear of them uh apart from whether or not they're actually real. Yeah. And in terms of like, you know, getting back to uh, the ship and, you know, insurrections and rebellions on those, one of the your chapters talks about the Amistad case, um, the, mm-hmm. the ship and the accompanying case. So for our listeners who are unfamiliar with that, could you briefly explain what the Amistad affair is about? Sure. So um, in 1839, um, the Spanish slave ship um, La Amistad was captured off the coast of Long Island, um, and it was soon discovered by the that it, the captives had revolted, um, led by a man called um, who was um, named called Joseph Cinque, although he had um, other names as well. Um, and he, in capturing the ship, um, they, he attempted to make the Spanish crew take them back to the west coast of Africa. Um, of course, that didn't happen. They ended up in New York, and the question then became what to do with them. Now, Spain wanted to reclaim them and try the ringleaders um, for two deaths that had occurred aboard the ship. Um, but American abolitionists saw um, an opportunity not only to um, repatriate the captives to Africa, but also to reframe the abolitionist debate by claiming that um, these captives were not guilty of murder because they had, um, and this is key, a natural right to revolt. Um, the case ended up turning on whether or not um, they had been acquired legally or illegally, um, because by this time the slave trade was illegal, and if they had been captured in Africa, um, they were they were illegitimately made to be slaves, and so they were entitled to be repatriated, which eventually happened. Um, this is, of course, um, the court case that um, John Quincy Adams tried before the Supreme Court. Um, so, in some ways, 
this is a huge turning point because um, the argument that um, um, enslaved people have the natural right to revolt um, had the potential to change the um, thinking surrounding insurrection. Um, and this is a, uh, this is something that becomes very kind of clear when you see the way that images of Joseph Singway circulate in the popular media um, during this time. Um, but the problem with the case is because it was restricted to um, only these particular insurrectionists, um, the argument had no effect on kind of extending that natural right to revolt to um in the enslaved in America. Um, so we have this like separate category that says, well, it's okay for these captives to revolt because they are not really slaves. They are um, sovereign citizens who have been illegally acquired and therefore they get to go back home. Um, so um, it becomes a kind of like um, very powerful um, moment, but also a very limited one. And one of the most interesting points that you bring up in your study of this case is that, you know, the you know natural law element of it, and as you say, the kind of legacy of the American Revolution being closely tied to that, mm-hmm. ends up actually whitewashing mm-hmm. um, enslaved violence. So, what what is that about? How does that happen? Um, I think in part because. Um you know, they the the second the propaganda machine went into effect, the Amistad mutineers were made into these celebrities in a way that really emphasized their more um, civilized aspects. I should and I should say quote unquote civilized um, their ability to learn how to read, their willingness to embrace Christianity, um, Joseph Cinque's vaunted eloquence, um, and they really sought to tie him in particular to the legacy of the American Revolution. Um, and you know, you have to play to do that. They really had to kind of downplay. Um, the act of violence that had brought him to this place. And you never really understand that um, there has actually been a, two murders aboard the ship. And I, um, you never, and you can't, you have this separate category of revolutionary violence that is distinctly sort of um, sanitized, pay no attention to this other revolution ever happening over here in Haiti. Um, this is the, this is the line we want to draw so that we actually kind of create within the minds of the public, something heroic and clean and nothing that reminds them of the kind of, um, possibility for, um, insurrection in this country. And I find it so interesting, especially because, you know, I think even to this to this day, if you if the average person is thinking about the American Revolution, the first image that comes to mind is probably going to be a bunch of white guys in a room (laughs) drafting a document and not a bunch of people killing each other in a field. And how the, the violence is just, you know, taken away from that. And you see that here and the kind of connect the kind of longevity of that image. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I think there's a sort of there's a way in which this sort of the iconic the iconography of the American Revolution is very sort of, you know, George Washington crossing the Delaware. But you forget there was like a war <laughs> going on here. Um, and with with regards to um you know, emancipation through armed violence, you have, you, you, you can't get away from that specter of kind of horror because it's been there um, since the Haitian revolution. Um, so the, so the sanitization um, becomes a, becomes very much a way of getting you to think about this as the kind of quote unquote clean revolution as opposed to the not so clean one. And so speaking about 
you know, enslaved people rebelling on ships and everything like that. And you brought this up earlier. Um, Frederick Douglass is the heroic slave. Yeah. Um, could you, for people who are unfamiliar with that, could you briefly explain, you know, what, what this novel is about, what this novella is about? Um, so um, there was a second um, insurrection aboard the ship, um, the Creel, that was led by a, a man named um, Madison Washington and talk about, you know, echoes of the American Revolution. Um, and um, that case was different than the Amistad case because um, those um, those people were being transported internally from one American port to another. Uh, Madison Washington led the revolt and the ship and um, the ship ended up docking in Jamaica. Um, there was another court case um, about whether or not um, they um, those people would be re-enslaved. And that court case was actually lost. And the only reason um, that um, nothing happened is that because they were in Jamaica, which had um, um, emancipated their people years earlier, um, they just didn't give them back. They said, no, <laughs> uh, we're, we're sorry, Supreme Court. Um, so um, so Douglas's choice to actually fictionalize the Creole story is an interesting one because it, um, on the one hand, you can see um, the echo or hear the echoes of the um, Amistad case in the story, but he chooses an American context to um, talk about the natural right to revolt. Um, so this story is um, about a um, Northern man called Mr. Listwell who comes across Madison, Washington and befriends him and eventually um, um, sees him about to be transported and gives him um files and weapons and later hears that he has successfully um led abandoned mutineers and escaped to freedom in jamaica and that's and and that's 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 pretty much the kind of arc of the story and you point out in your book that you know the heroic slave is the only story of a successful slave rebellion that's written by a black american at the time but as you also point out douglas shows this rebellion in sort of a secondhand nature. And so what does that mean? Like how, how does this show Douglas trying to navigate the complicated world um, of abolition, abolitionism and as particularly as a black abolitionist? Uh, well, the short answer is that you see, you have to see the story as very carefully calibrated for a white audience. Um, Mr. Listwell as a character is like an avatar for the white reader, slowly being converted to believe in the cause of um, armed insurrection. Um, and Douglas is interesting because he was, radicalized very early and speaks of insurrectionists in deeply respect respectful terms in his speeches like general turner general prosser and the like he is actually clearly drawing um a line from the american revolution um excuse me american slave insurrections to the haitian revolution so he's actually moving away from that model of um you know declaring our um insurrectionists as sort of the heirs of the american revolution um, he also very nearly joined John Brown on his ill-fated campaign, but he saw the risk of delegitimizing armed insurrection by tying himself too closely to something so risky. So the heroic slave shows him walking the line between wanting to create a character um, that isn't um, frightening. Um, um, Madison Washington in um, 
Douglas's sort of rendering is very, very kind of formidable, but also very eloquent and very kind of quote unquote civilized. Um, um, there's a kind of like, like there's a kind of almost superhero quality to him. And um, because of this and the way he sidesteps um, the issue of actually depicting the spectacle of violence aboard the Creole, um, he ultimately becomes part of this larger tradition of not showing black actors doing violent acts, which um, also unwittingly, I must emphasize, creates like this issue of racializing violence. Um, you never have to deal with the with the spectacle of the death aboard the Creole. You only sort of see him um, making these kind of heroic speeches um, in the story. Yeah, I, I find it so interesting that, you know, the, the abolitionist movement was, you know, obviously just a very complicated movement, you know, and there's particularly, you know, this huge divide that I think a lot of people sort of forget about because they see it as a monolith. There's this divide between white and black abolitionists of how to portray enslaved people, how, what are the best means and everything like that, and how to get converts. And so Douglas is just trying to, along with ending the institution of slavery, also trying to figure out how we can have allies yeah. and everything in this. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's one of those um, problems that sort of, um, kind of see there's no real solution if you're looking at it because part of the issue is the urgency of ending slavery is so very real and so very great um and create and doing things that are politically expedient makes a certain amount of sense in the moment simply because it moves the ball forward that much um but again but again it's also hard to um, um miss the fact that there are kind of bolder um more, um, more in more kind of dynamic moves that could have been made, like like attacking the like attacking wholesale the economics of um, of the trade in ways, in, you know, looking at looking at the sugar plant, look, the sugar trade, looking at other aspects that could have been more kind of um, holistic. Um, and you don't really, and you also see this um, question of like, do you want to portray violence as something good? Um, um, that's that's something that I don't. I don't really have an answer to. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a very complicated matter. <laughs> yeah. And so in your last chapter, you talk about uh, the case of Washington Good, and I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, yeah. And the kind of fictional story that's based, that is sort of based on him. And so how does how is this important to the Washington or to the to the abolitionist movement um, as well? Um, that's a more complicated question because good is sort of different because he was a sailor who was free. He, um, he had served time, you know, in the military and, um, he, his cause wasn't explicitly about, um, about abolition, except in the fact that abolitionists, um, sort of rallied to his cause. His, um, his was a capital punishment case. Um, so good was a sailor who was accused of having murdered a romantic rival in Boston, um, in 1849. And he was convicted on very circumstantial evidence. Um, and the presiding judge was none other than Herman Melville's father-in-law, Lemuel Shaw. Um, and I had been working with this idea for a while that um, Melville's Billy Budd was saying something interesting about race. Um, the novel opens with a memory of a 
this black handsome sailor. And this recalls um, the story of Billy Budd, who is another handsome sailor, except he's white. Um, so um, I was looking at sort of the um, case history of Lemuel Shaw, and I stumbled upon this case. And um, the more I read, I realized that, that there's a lot of tantalizing resonances with Billy Budd. Um, um, one of the interesting things you see the abolitionists um, defending Washington Good do is um, talking about him in a ways that they're similar to the way um, they talk about the enslaved. Um, um, there's a lot of referencing of his unfortunate condition as a reason to commute his sentence, never mind that the evidence used to convince him was very, very iffy. Um, so my method was to sort of think of Good as a negative doppelganger for um, Billy Budd. Um, Good is black, where Billy Budd is white, of questionable character, where Budd is of pristine character. And most intriguingly of all, he was all probably innocent of his crime, whereas the character Billy Budd was definitely guilty. You actually see um, Budd kill someone, and that's an interesting kind of feature of the chapter. Here is an instance of violence that kind of comes at us sort of front and center. Um, as well. Um, so um, one of the interesting things about the good case is that um, it doesn't often get referenced in terms of sort of the, in terms of in relationship to Melville's work and Melville's work is very much um, often referenced when you talk about legal history as particularly because he was so interested in his um, father-in-law's work surrounding the fugitive slave, slave law. Um, and so when I chose to write about good, there was a couple of the main reason was that I had this kind of interesting tie to um, Billy Budd with the black sailor, but also um, because um, Good's case um, says something else about the way um, violence is getting racialized. Because Good is not a slave, Good is not, and Good is not um, the same as like Joseph Sequiano or Denmark Bessie, um, but he is sort of he is sort of referenced with that exact same language um, in, in, in particularly in his sentencing, when you look at Lemuel Shaw's words. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, you know, when reading over the book and then you get, you get to this point in the book and towards the end and everything, and you really see in concrete terms, not that it's like wishy-washy before, but you know, how racialized, as you just said, this language of violence is. And it it's just it's so interesting because as you know, we've we've said throughout this interview, and as we just said um a couple of minutes ago, you know, the question of enslaved violence is is it's a very complicated one of what you want to do with that. Yeah. Uh, it is yeah, it's, it, it is and it isn't, I think. Um, what makes it complicated is sort of the fact that you don't want things to get to that point. Um, what makes it simple is that uh, the natural right to the natural right to defend one's freedom is something we've been living with for a long time, particularly as Americans. However, we don't all live with it equally, right? We don't have equal access to kind of a violent response when we feel ourselves threatened. And I think you can kind of, when I hear like in my voice, sort of the resonances with things happening in our own moment. Um, and that's what's so interesting about um, thinking about Washington good in relationship to this white sailor, because I know the things that, um, I was trying to do with that chapter is that I see Melville showing the way um, that thinking of violence as only coming from certain quarters actually means we don't understand uh, the larger implications of revolutionary violence. We don't understand that the precondition for revolutionary violence isn't that you fit the description of a mutineer as 
Billy Budd categorically does not. Um, it's that you have a moment where you feel your freedom to be under threat, as he eventually does and reacts. Um, and he is Melville is interesting in that um, he opens the book with this memory of the black sailor, and then pretty much instructs the book for us to forget. By the end of the story, there's no point in remembering that the, this whole story is about kind of came to us through this memory of the black sailor. So the reader has forgotten, but the story has not forgotten the black sailor. Um, the story remembers that there is this, there is this link between um, this question of who is a violent actor and how race figures into that. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's very fascinating in my opinion at least, and you know I I definitely agree with the um sort of modern contemporary you know relevance of all of this and how you know once again like I said earlier with the kind of imagery of the American Revolution we certainly see as well with you know racialized violence and the way it's depicted um that that hasn't gone anywhere either. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know I think it's you know um. It's been, it was interesting to be kind of finishing this book in this moment, um, particularly as um, I was as I was sort of putting the finishing touches on it. It was sort of this question of like, do we want to see these videos of um, of um, men and women killed by the police on TV and on the internet all the time? And it was it was like, oh my! I was thinking right because to what extent is sort of like um, document the atrocity also kind of doubling down on this kind of question of like. Um, um, black person is sort of as sort of acted on, not acting, right? So, um, so, but I so I couldn't stop thinking about that um, while I was writing the book. Um, so it's interesting to have that kind of resonance in your head. Yeah, I mean, I, I could definitely see that myself. Um, so I guess before we let you go, could you uh, let our listeners know what we can expect from you in the future? Because I'm sure our listeners are going to go out, you know, right now and buy this book. Once again, Lenora Warren, Fire on the Water. But what can we expect from you in the future? What might you be working on right now? Um, so I have a... After you take a break, obviously, because oh. this book just came out, everyone. <laughs> oh yeah, well, there's sort of there is kind of no rest for us. We're sort of all we're all we're only as good as our next uh, our, our next project. Um, so I'm actually kind of switching gears um, a little bit. I'm talking actually about um, I'm doing a book on um, Phyllis Wheatley and um, um, a different a different kind of approach to resistance in her work, looking at her books as not sort of actively politically resisting slavery, but doing something different and kind of looking at pairing her with a number of um, African-American women writers that I see as also doing interesting things um, from the 19th century to the present. So it's a different, it's a much more, um, um, it's, it's, a, it's a project that sort of has resistance kind of at its core, but in a far different way. Um, and I'm also, um, just got um, a note about writing um, more another piece on Melville for a collection, and I don't have a lot of information around that now. But it's going to be on ships and mutiny and kind of a, a coda uh, to this book. So um, I have no idea how long it's going to take these projects to get off the ground, but hopefully you'll see them in the future. Well, I'm sure once they're out, we'll have you right back on the program and we can talk about that as well. Because right. I know for myself, I'm definitely interested in reading about Phyllis Wheatley. So, <laughs> Yes, I hope, I hope you're not the only one. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Warren, for being on the program today. Thanks for having me, Derek. I really appreciated it.